0: Our objective at the Association of Sporting Directors is to support, develop and connect our members who are spread out across the globe and all bring unique skills and experiences to the role of Sporting Director. In addition to our in-person events and our online networking sessions, we are really excited to bring you a brand new podcast series covering key topics generated by the membership and central to the future development of the Sporting Director role. Season one focuses on effective decision-making and is brought to you by Paul Musa, host of the What the Footy podcast series, who spoke to five ASD members, including Mark Cartwright, Zoran Cronetta, Matt Jordan, Greg Broughton, and Dan Ashworth. Some fascinating insights from practitioners working at the heart of the professional game. Looking forward to these. Over to you, Paul.
1: Welcome to the ASD podcast, Mark. How are you feeling today?
0: I'm good, thanks, Paul. How are you?
1: No, I'm good. So you're in, you're in sunny. Is it sunny temper today, or is it a bit cloudy uh, outside?
0: It's, it's cloudy today, mate. Unfortunately, the the last hurricane, which was only about a couple of weeks ago, blew some poor weather in. So it's it's usually bright blue skies and, and warm, but at the moment it's just a little bit. It's unusually cold. It's only about I don't know 70 degrees. So struggling, mate. Struggling.
1: No, no, that's the first question that we ask all our guests on the ASD podcast because our theme for the year is effective decision making is what is the most challenging or toughest decision that you've ever had to make in the role and why?
0: that's a that's a good one. I think see, i could I could play it nice and easy and say the the hardest thing is to whether is to decide whether you're releasing a player or giving him a contract. Uh, because I think, whether you intend to or not, you know, if you sign a player, then you start. You end up having a relationship, personal relationship with that player as a friend, as a mentor, whatever it is. And I think when the time comes to make difficult decisions over people, that's that's a tough one because you you know you can't let that sort of friendship or emotion play any aspect into a decision when it comes to that. So I'm going to tell the easy one and go for that, mate.
1: No, that's that's super useful, and we're going to delve a little bit into it into that as well. But just sort of starting it off, you obviously played as well and you are an agent as well. i just love to know how, how those sort of experiences shaped you going into Stoke and working there as their first ever, ever sporting director.
0: I think the easy thing was from a player to an agent, the transition there was as an agent, I had a couple of agents that were either okay or had no knowledge of the game and were just purely... Business contractual that type of thing. So when I when I became an agent, I, I used all the mistakes I'd made, the good things that I'd done as well, but all but more importantly, the mistakes I'd made as a player to help guide the, the the lads that I had under contract, so that they they would go further than I did. And I think once you become that agent, and once you start planning people's careers and pathways. I think it's that aspect of the of the job that is incredibly rewarding. And, and I think, you know, yeah, the, the negotiating and player contracts, that's great, you know, because you, you've you got that behind you. But I think that it was that transition plus the fact that, you know, I was well-connected around the world in terms of different marketplaces. So when when I did go into Stoke, you know, it's about whether it's career planning for the academy kids trying to get through to the first team or, you know, bringing a player in into the first team to then try and develop them and sell them. It was all about building, you know, it was all trying about. And that's the thing that I really enjoyed. It was about the building something and trying to, you know, make things, you know, much, much better.
1: And and even just on that topic of building, how did you go about building your your sort of team around you, your, your recruitment team, the, the team around the academy, the sports science and medicine side? obviously being one of the first there, I kind of imagined there wasn't sort of maybe much set up at the time. And over the years within the role, we've seen a lot of sort of backroom staff and that sort of technical staff around the sporting director really, really grow.
0: Yeah, I guess I was quite lucky because coming from the sort of background I'd come from, I dealt with a lot of people at other clubs so in my mind i i had an idea of who who was good who had good knowledge of players who worked hard because that was very very important for me you know and, and who also had that sort of personality where they could they could interact with all sorts of different people so i also you know i was also lucky enough to you know Probably Mike Rig was, you know, one of the original sporting directors, and and to be fair to, to Mike, I'd known him from Wrexham many, many, many years ago, and Mike was always there to sort of, I guess, be a little bit of a mentor and talk to me and help, you know. So I had that, you know, sort of wonderful opportunity as well. So I think it was knowing the people that I knew helped me build a really good team around me, and I, you know, it was very rare that anybody left us, you know, until obviously till the, till the very end. And then again, you know, with the academy, it was trying to change the culture really of what was, what was there because, you know, they weren't developing players. They weren't, you know, recruiting good players. So it was, again, it was a shift of a shift of culture and, and having to then deal with foreign players as well, rather than just, you know, British lads. So it was, it was the whole thing really. So I guess, you know, to, i used the my network of sort of people to go and get what i felt was the right team around me that could could really develop the club and, and push it forward
1: and, then, and just even delving into that a little bit, what, what was the sort of remit given to you by the time when you were sort of maybe approached by whether it was Tony Sculls or the Coates family? What, what was the sort of remit that was given to you? Because I think a big thing and a lot of the misconception is that a lot of people, whether that's driven by the media, they believe it's just a role around recruitment and transfers. But what was the remit that was given to you there at the time?
0: I think initially it was... You know, the the strategy that they had in place at the time was, you know, English players or players that were in the Premier League that had high value that were an age where that value would diminish. So it was, could we could we successfully recruit better players for less money? So it was focusing on fixing the first team's recruitment first, then spreading that down into the academy, fixing that. And then I guess over the years, the role sort of spread into where it is now, I mean, we always took it's, you say that the conception is that it's all about recruitment and it's, you know, there's also a misconception that it's that person that is signing the players, you know, it's never, you know, Dan Ashworth isn't signing the players for Newcastle. Yes, he's part of that process, but Eddie Howe will have a say. And we were exactly the same, you know, the manager had, had the final say. And I think until the media can understand that, you know, the manager doesn't have full responsibility, you know but he has a huge say in, in who who comes in the sporting director you know has a huge say in who comes in, and it's a team effort as to then who comes in but again until you know until the media realise that the manager doesn't have all control the sporting director isn't an, an evil Darth Vader you know that mm-hmm. out to destroy the, the clubs you know then the, these misconceptions will keep going.
1: Yeah and I think another one linked to that as well is having sort of been in a role for quite a while Mark how do you sort of see the conversation around whether the sporting director should sit on the board? Because a lot of sporting directors don't don't sit on the board and aren't in the board meetings where a lot of those resources are allocated. When you have the CFO there talking about the budget and and having all those kind of different conversation, how has that almost worked for you at Stoke? Were you were you privy to those meetings? Were you in the meetings? And and how have you kind of seen it kind of shift and evolve? I think.
0: I was very lucky, I think, at Stoke because I had a great chief exec in Tony Scholes and I had a Couch family and it was primarily Peter and John that were were on top of everything. And I think I was very lucky that we had great lines of communication. So, you know, I'm not an accountant. I'm not going to be somebody that's going to sit there and listen and fully understand what a CFO is talking about. But then when you're given your budget and when you're told this is what we can do or this is what we can't do, then, you know, so... (laughs) I think it's it's vital that they have some part to play in a board meeting or even sitting on a board, but I think it's not – for me it wasn't vital because I would have our football, sporting meetings, you know, which is where we would talk about cost of players, wages, everything else, with Tony, with Peter, with John, you know, with the manager. You, you would go – and then you'd also have, you know, other meetings away from that with – with the chief exec or with the owners and it, you would go into different depths and details. So I think it's you know it's where people are comfortable. You know, as a as a club, you know, Tony hat was a, you know, was an accountant. He had a great grasp of the financials. So I don't need to muddy those waters by trying to put my, you know, pounds worth of knowledge in there when he's an expert in in that area. So I think it depends on the dynamics of how things are set up. You know, it will work good for for some clubs, I think it won't for others.
1: And and how did you find those reporting lines working with the Coates family? Because obviously I know quite a few different family members involved there. We're seeing now in football professional investors coming in, multi, multi-club multi ownership. I've spoken so far with a few different members on, on the podcast, Matt Jordan, Zoran, and and also Greg as well. We've worked with different different types of owners. How, how, how did you find it working within that sort of structure?
0: it was very clear so and because it was clear you you knew where your lines were you knew what you could and couldn't do you knew who to go to and and to keep informed every step of the way so I think again I go back to when I was lucky with that structure and and, and how it worked and it's probably you know it was probably a dying you know breed really of, of what's going on there because we were we were allowed to do our jobs and you know but we were accountable we sat down in front of the owners, who were the people putting the money in, and you know, we would go through every single decision. So there was accountability. There were clear lines, and I think that's probably where um, you know the single family ownership group is 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 a lot easier to deal with, probably than you know multiple owners or even multi club ownership models. You know, so I think I, I found I found it very refreshing. You know that it was so clear.
1: No, that's useful, and and one of the things I think that's quite fascinating about Stoke and your time is th- it's almost a shift of strategy in in a sort of mm-hmm. way. Obviously, having sort of Tony there and that sort of core group of sort of British players that you sort of mentioned there to that shift of of Mark Hughes, where you were signing players like Afili and Bojan and Naltevich. Just, just sort of talk me through the process of 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 what it was like, almost changing tact and changing strategy and were the owners sceptical? Because I think at that point when Mark came in and you were starting to sign those quote-unquote flair players like Shakiri, for example, mm-hmm. had, were an established Premier League club with about five, six seasons in the league. And we rarely ever see clubs shift and change into into that kind of different strategy. I think Crystal Palace are kind of undergoing that sort of similar thing yeah. now with Patrick Vieira. Just sort of talk to me the the reasoning and the, and the rationale behind it.
0: I think given the shift in the style of play, we we had a core cool group of players that were were absolutely capable of playing under Mark Hughes in, in that style. But we also had a group of players that couldn't take us to what where we wanted to be, which was that next level, which was top 10. And I think, you know, given the fact that we had then gone about in the six months prior to that, gone about a change in the recruitment department as well. A change in the knowledge of players around the world rather than the focus just being on England. We were we were focusing on 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 other countries and the you know the the sort of remit of could we you know could we bring somebody and could we develop something like Marco, you know you're signing for two and a half million and you're selling for twenty five that had never been done at Stoke before it was always you'd sign somebody and then they aged and then eventually you know they 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 moved for a small fee or excuse me or they you know the contract ran out. So it was a complete shift in what we were trying to do. And it was through, you know, our knowledge of the marketplaces that we were able to get the Afrolis for free, the Bojans for, you know, more or less free, you know, Mark Mooney, Eric Peters. And, and when we did that, we, we, we brought the, we changed the style of play and we brought the technical ability of the team up various notches, you know, and some, some players would fall by the wayside because they couldn't, keep up with that that sort of level and and others would would rise to the occasion you know so I think it was it was an incredibly enjoyable journey for those years when we were whilst we were making that shift.
1: No that's awesome I'm going to let you grab a quick drink before we go into part two because I'm conscious of the fact that we've been talking for quite a while now and allow the listeners to hear from one of our ASD partners. Hey, hope you're enjoying the episode. It's Nicola here from Ahead in Sport. Ahead in Sport, the leading provider in the development of innovative education and training programs, including the brand new portfolio of courses for the Association of Sporting Directors. Remember to follow and subscribe to the ASD podcast on Spotify, Apple or your chosen platform. Now sit back, relax and enjoy the episode. You swapped Stoke for for Tampa, Florida, where you're, you know, sporting director for the USL, which is a fast-growing league. Just sort of talk to me more about how it sort of came about when you were sort of approached by Jake, who's the president there. Mm-hmm. What the sort of remit there, because it kind of seems from looking at it, you're going to be co- you've been covering club education, player development, and coaching. Just sort of talk yeah. to me how working within the remit of working in the league differs to to being at a club.
0: Yeah, so the whole the whole thing. So Jake, I played with. First met Jake years ago when we were both playing for, for Wrexham, and we, we obviously became good friends through that. And he joined the USL at the same time I joined Stoke, and obviously you know our sort of trajectory you know went in in that direction. And then so you know you sort of fast forward nearly you know ten years, and it's a case the league was at this the point where they'd grown really well and they were doing really good things, but they needed to try and take. Things to that next level, so it was literally I was I was in talks with an MLS team about joining them, and I, and I got the call from Alec and Jake to basically say, look, you know, will you come here? We can't pay you as much as the MLS, but you know, we think that the the opportunity is is, is far greater. So, and and the the sort of remit was was really broad, Paul. It was a case of you know we need you, we want you to come in and try and professionalise the league, professionalise the club so that the standard on the pitch is is also met with a good standard off the pitch and and how do we how do we become part of the global transfer market all these sort of questions that were, were thrown at me when you looked at it it was like well yeah it's, it's an amazing opportunity you know it's, it's, it's it, like you say it's the the fastest growing league in in the world it's got you know 40 i think professional teams it's got 100 and something academy teams you know it's got the biggest footprint across america so it was quite an exciting you know, as, as a sporting you know we go back to building you want to build something out and, and when i got here it was really apparent that the focus had been on the business side of it so ticketing commercial game day experience they were superb you know they were absolutely incredibly sophisticated on the business side and clubs were breaking even some clubs you know starting to make profit which is obviously you know what 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 the league wanted but then if you looked at the sporting side, there was no infrastructure. There was nothing really in place. And it was, you know, I think the biggest problem I faced when I got here was convincing the owners that the players are assets, not liabilities, because they'd been brought up looking at the PL sheet going, right, where's my biggest outlay? Well, it's the players' salaries. Therefore, they must be my biggest liability. So it was trying to flip them on that. And, and it was a sort of a, a slow process just trying to figure it all out at first and that's then what led into the right well we've got to educate them now how far back do I have to go in terms of education and it was all you know it was literally all the way back to you know using the TMS not getting caught out with training compensation to contract management to you know basically making sure that your assets you're protecting your assets with good contracts because when I first arrived an average the contracts were like you'd get one year maybe a one-year option. So you never see your asset value in there. And then it was, well, who's actually negotiating the contracts? Because there were some absolutely horrific clauses in there. I mean, one, one player who was this team's best player had a clause in there. that, And this is because there's no infrastructure. So the head coach is also doing the contracts, is negotiating, he's doing the recruitment. It's like you know, being back in the 1980s in, in League Two Britain. And, you know, the, the clause, so they'd sack, the club had sacked the manager and then the best player was being touted by a team in Europe and the agent reminded them that they had a clause in the contract that stated if the manager had been sacked, he could leave for free. And it was just, it was phenomenal. Yeah, and it was only because, I mean, we, we managed to sort of dig them out of the hole because the club that he was going to, I had a relationship with the president there. So they, to be fair to that club, they did the right thing and gave a a transfer fee, but that was, you need these little stories to be able to put in the building blocks so that the owners and the presidents start appreciating what it is you're telling them. And then I think the other thing is, you've, I fast forward that 12, year, 12 months, and then I'm sat in front of the owners and the board of governors again, with real proof of what we've changed has made a real difference, and we've got to keep going on that pathway. And then I think because of all those little things, you can then start bringing in, you know educational certificates can we develop programs where if you're going to be a sporting director in this league you ha- you do a 12 month certificate so that the owners and the league have got confidence that you know what you're doing over here so you know that's the so we're looking at three for presidents for sporting directors and for coaches so little things like that educating them on player pathways the youth system is completely different over here because it's a pay to play model so trying to educate them on the benefits of a fully funded academy. You know, how do we get players into that system? You know, the trust that is then needed to bump them up into the first team to keep playing them and the benefits that 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 will bring. So it's the whole process. And the biggest difference is you're not doing it for one club. I'm doing it for 40. And I've got 40 different ownership groups that are got different personalities, different setups, different egos, different ideas. And it's dealing with each one individually. So that's the that's the sort of crux of the job and, and, and what it's all about. And, and, you know, you go back to, you know, dealing with owners and everything else. You've got to, you know, as a sporting director, you've got to be able to understand people's characters, understand what drives them, how to motivate them and how to get the best out of them, whether that's a board of one person or whether it's a board of 10 people or in this case, 40 people, you know. It's, it's, it's understanding what message you need to get across to get them to, you know, properly back what you're trying to implement.
1: No, that's really interesting because I think one of the questions that I was going to ask is how, how receptive are they to these changes, which are very much kind of how we do things over here in English football and, and in Europe, because with some of the points that you mentioned there, some of them are breaking even, they're turning a the profit. And you're now saying spend x amount of millions now in developing the academy but it's about educating them to flip the mindset of seeing the intrinsic value in that as well
0: yeah no 100 percent. and what i've found listen when you're in the premier league if you need let's just say y scout for example and it's going to cost you 15 grand a year you know yeah okay let's do it if i'm asking them to bring in a sporting director on you know x amount of dollars a year it's it's a real justification as to why that. Why am I having to invest? And let's pull a figure from the sky, You know, two hundred grand a year in this person. What? What's he going to do for me? And you know, so it's it's giving them little. It's giving them the advice that you know. For example, a good sporting director will make you money and he'll save you money. He'll save you money by putting the right processes and structures in place and by doing the right recruitment. You know, investing in the medical side will mean you've got the players on the pitch for longer. And he'll make you money by then being able to have the contacts to move those players on when the time is right. And it's getting them, you know. So what what I've found, Paul, is, you know, they are incredibly receptive to it. Don't get me wrong. You'll always get a group of people that think they know everything, that that they know what they're doing. And, you know, they've got more knowledge than you. And you'll always. But what will happen is, you know, the top group will pull away. The middle group will want to follow the top group and the ones that think they know everything will just disappear to the to the bottom and i think you know at the moment we're talking about you know we, we we're at the point where we're talking about promotion and relegation and aligning with the the, the international calendar and, and we've we've done a we've paid for a huge report to be done around that and we're getting ready to present that hopefully to our owners which you know could then go to a vote and it's then, then I think you'll really awaken the competitiveness in in the owners because these are these are you know self made men, they're multimillionaires, they're billionaires, you know they've got that edge, you know you just got to sort of get it out of them.
1: Yeah, because that's what I was going to ask. I was going to ask how the league and the structure of it compares to the MLS because. What, like When I was speaking with Zoran, for example, and trying to rack my head around all these different rules and regulations of DPs yeah. and allocation money and salary caps, and he even has someone who's like his director of, of player personnel and salary caps just to help him yeah. to understand all of this stuff. How does the league almost kind of break away in its own? Because I think maybe there's some people out there that may associate yeah. it with the MLS and have some connotations to the MLS, but... How does the league truly break away in its own? Is it by adopting that sort of European model, as you sort of mentioned?
0: Well, I mean, we're, we're two separate entities anyway. You know, the MLS goes down the, the American sports model, which is, you know, got to be an agent in every major city. We're, we're more, you know, it, it's, it's about building a proper club in a, in a community and, and trying to build that tribalism in the fan base that you see everywhere else around the world. So that, you know, we're trying to build those community clubs. Our clubs also, so the MLS is a single entity. So the league owns the players, you know, the clubs, and then the owners of the clubs own the league. Whereas we're, we're, we're not a single entity. So each club is more like Europe. You know, there they are separate entities within the league. They have all the rights to the players and the youth players and everything else that that go with it. So we're very much separate in in that respect. We're like the rest of the world. Which is why, again, you know, if if we can get the promotion relegation through, if we can get the international calendar alignment through, then you you again you're differentiating yourself even more. And I mean, my my, listen, it may sound a grandiose plan, but my my sort of strap line, I guess, when I came here was look, you know, when the world when the eyes of the world start shifting to America for the World Cup, you know, I, I want them to look at us and see us like. Like they are, you know, we're, we're just exactly like them. We're, we're like, you know, run the same way, have the same systems in place, principles, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's that. That's where the sort of key differences are, Paul. We don't have gam tam anything like that. There's no DPS, you know. We we don't have salary caps because that, you know they run very business like. We have the ability to implement salary caps if you know a club is is running away and. Just being completely crazy, but you know we don't need to be that restrictive at the moment. So you know we're we're in a good place in that respect.
1: No, that's that's brilliant, and I think there's been some really useful use cases in terms of players within the league going on to sign for clubs in La Liga and 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 Ligue 1 as yeah. well. Just just sort of talk to me about the sort of role that you've kind of played and maybe shaping that. Do you have partnerships with the leagues in Europe? Are you trying to forge them and and also with the World Cup coming in four years' time, how are you trying to to increase the spotlight on American talent? Because it's, it's certainly growing. We're seeing more American players come over to the Premier League. We're seeing more American players go over to the Bundesliga as well.
0: Yeah, I think because we have got that footprint, you know, you've got the ability, certainly our clubs have got the ability to find that player within their academy system and, you know, give them that pathway to the first team. And we've got clubs that are doing it very, very well. I think my role is really to help them once they realise they've got an asset. It's my role to help them in in terms of introducing them to some of the clubs in in Europe. Sometimes they don't need it because, you know, as I always tell them, if you've got a 16, 17, 18-year-old, 19-year-old playing in a, in a a professional league anywhere across the world, clubs are watching because of Y-Scout and they're all, they're all trying to find that hidden gem. And so I think you've got that plus you've got the fact that, you know, Europe was my playground, you know, when I was at Stoke, that's, that's where I was all the connections and, and it's working with the clubs to sort of market these players to Europe and then to help them on the transfer negotiation side, because it's completely new to them. Whereas, you know, it's not to Europe and they don't, all the tricks of the trade, and it's making sure that our clubs are well represented and they know what they're doing. I think we've had to set the marketplace in terms of transfer values. So, you know, we've, we've broken the transfer fee, I think three times this year already. So we're moving in the right direction. I think the next transfer will be a big, big one for us because it'll be, A, it'll be, it'll smash the transfer fee, but it's also it'll be a local lad who, you know, was born in the city, gone through the academy system, gone into the first team and then we'll end up in Europe. I think what we need now as a league is for these players that are moving into Europe to move again, you know, and then the world sees that you can churn out these talents. But, I mean, the talent's here, Paul. I mean, everybody's got some some incredibly gifted players. Some are more suited to stay in this country. Some are going to be more suited to Spain. Others to Germany. And again, that's where I'm helping our, our teams. You know, it's okay. well... I'm looking at your player and, you know, he's probably suited to Germany or you need to send him to Belgium to then get him into England. Cause he's that good. So it's that advice. If they don't want my advice, I, don't, I won't, I won't give it, you know, but you know, the majority of them, when they have what they perceive to be an asset, will will certainly be on the phone sort of saying, what do I do? How do we do it? What do you think he's worth? You know, and how do we go about getting that? Obviously the knowledge of, I know what all the transfer fees are. So in terms of being able to give that advice as to where the market is now what's the market like where you're looking to sell him you know this is all stuff that it's just natural you know so it's very easy to help them in that
1: respect and and to you what does success look like for the usl
0: i think it's 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 continued growth i think it's continuing to put a better product on the field so that's clever cleverer recruitment casting the net a bit further than you know CONCACAF regions or America and you know getting rid of these one plus one year contracts. And, and it's becoming a bigger player in in the in the transfer market. I think the biggest, the biggest story that helped me this year was when we sold Hadji Berry to Egypt, because we'd we'd only we'd sold every the last six transfers until Hadji had been under the age of 20. So they were all emerging talents. Hadji was 29, had had a great season, and he got a you know he broke transfer record and went to Egypt. And I, you know if I flip back to the very start where I'm trying to convince our owners that the players are assets, that you know, that was the biggest story because I'm now saying, you know your 18 year old is worth this, but now your 29 year olds are worth this. So everybody has a value, you know. So it's continuing that and continuing that message and. You know, strengthening, you know, bringing in another revenue pillar for the clubs, but also making them build their infrastructures out, you know, bringing sporting directors, do proper due diligence, to have proper processes, you know, negotiate proper contracts, don't be lazy, don't let every other league dictate to us. So it's trying to get away from this. Well, we're the small league, so, you know, we need to let everybody else dictate to us. It's, it's getting away from that. You know, we're the MLS are just another league just because they're in the same country doesn't mean they should have any favouritism, you know, absolutely not. Because, you know, the lad that is probably going to leave next year, you know, Europe will pay three times the amount that the the MLS will. So why, why would we sell them to the MLS? You know, so it's a case of, you know, you've just got to continue building that continue building out, continue building the professionalism within the clubs, so that the product on the pitch is matched by the levels of professionalism off it, and then you start becoming more of a global player.
1: Yeah, and of course we we couldn't not talk about the 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 championship and the and the playoffs and the, the big weekend that you had. Just, just sort of talk to me about, about that experience. Well,
0: I mean it's you know, look, you you sort of go from a club to a league and the league has every single I mean it's been an incredible learning curve to look at what they do to help them on the commercial side, on the marketing side, you know, how they sell the franchises for the clubs. Uh, you know, the. And I, I would say probably that we give our clubs more help than any other league in the world, you know, in terms of how to run the clubs. So I think that's been a really enjoyable learning curve. And then operationally, when you, you know, it's obviously we're used to, you either win promotion or you get relegated or you're in the playoffs, you know. There's none of this where you finish your conference, then you go into the playoffs. And then you if you're lucky enough, you you know, you get through to the final. And it's it's just it's it's the showcase game. You know, it's it's the best team from the East Conference against the best team from the West Conference, you know, through the playoffs. And so you you guarantee to get two good teams in and, and you're guaranteed to have a good game. I think then it's it's being able to showcase what it's all about. And, and you know, we held championship one at San Antonio this year. You know, sold out. It was the fans. The fans were you know well into it, singing, drumming. You know, all that sort. Of, there were no gimmicks that I think sometimes can get associated with with sport over here. You know, like the the big organ and you know in ice hockey or, or whatever. Or you know, this the corner sponsored by you know Wicks. You know, whatever it is. But so it was. You know, it's it's it was a really really enjoyable experience. The quality of the game was incredibly good, and I think it showed that again, the quality of last year's final, we've improved again. So, and, and you just want to continue to see that improve. And I think the league is, year on year, is improving, you know, with with the standards of not just the players, but also the coaches, you know, because they're, they're a key component in all of this. You know, so I think their their levels are, are going up and our quality is going up. You see it this year, you know, the, the Open Cup is, is America's version of the FA Cup. You know, and we had... Teams, you know, from League One making the quarterfinals, Championship teams getting into the semifinals, you know, Championship team in the final against, you know, Orlando City. So, you know, the we're we're competing at the highest levels in this country. So, you know, if we we're a different league, we just got to continue that growth.
1: And, and even from a talent perspective how, how are you sort of seeing sort of football soccer kind of comparing to to the traditional American sports of American football and basketball and, and really ensuring that in 5, 10, 15, 20 years the talent that's really coming through are is is, ma- is mainly football and, and choosing football because a lot of kids at an early age tend to go for a sort of multi-sport sport approach and playing different sport and then finding the one that, that really appeals to them.
0: I actually think that's that's part of an advantage. That they, it's an advantage. It's also a disadvantage. It's an advantage because they're more of a well-rounded athlete. You know what America does have. It has athletic, agile, you know, strong, stamina. You know they've got all these real key athletic components in them. I think you know it's just then giving them the, that footballing intelligence to to go and play the game. But I think it's the growth of of football here has been phenomenal will it ever really challenge basketball, baseball, or, you know, American football, you know, who knows, but where it's got to now, it's it used to be, it was never perceived as a real job. You know, you, 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 you went to university and if you were lucky, then maybe you got drafted or whatever. But now, now that they can see that there's this pathway, now that they can see there's a, you can earn good money here. It's that's, that's changing as well. So it's, it's continuing to change that aspect of it so that the the young players and the parents realize that this is a it's true you know it's real yeah it's, it's not american football where they're earning you know 20 million a year or what at 50 million a year but it's a very good career and it can get you to europe so you know and then with the world cup coming up i mean i think that's another key aspect you know if you look at the data there's always a boom in the sport in the in the industry in that country around a world cup so we've gone got, we've got four years, five years of build-up to the the next World Cup in 26. So, you know, if we can't capitalise on that, then we're doing something wrong because, you know, everybody's going to be focusing on what's what's coming to their country.
1: No, for sure. One of the quotes that that I took from your LinkedIn that I really like is, you need to keep ahead of all aspects of management, administration, coaching and recruitment. Up-to-date is out-of-date. Just explain to the listeners what that means to you.
0: You've just got to. You can't listen. You can't sit back and rest on your laurels. You can't think that you've you've got to a point where you know you you're, you. When I say up to date is as. date, if you're up to date, there's something else coming out, and you've got to be fully aware of what's around the corner. So, you know what is the next best you know artificial intelligence that's going to come out? How can it affect it? You know, I did a thing with FIFA based on the future game, and it was just it was it was as much as right. Okay, we're here now. But what could it look like in 10 years' time? Could you be using robots as mannequins, you know, rather than your your under-18s, for example? You know, so little things like that. And it's just trying to really see what could come next and never, never sit and rest on your laurels. Because if you you do that, you're going to be out of date almost instantly. So it's just continually – and I think that the the biggest thing for me, Paul, here is – when you sort of become that educator again, you're re-educating yourself and, and I think it's it's vital that everybody in their role doesn't sit back, relax, become complacent. you've always got to be constantly striving to be well what's next, what's going to come out that could give us that small margin of the victory or improve the the revenue streams for the clubs so yeah. that that's where I'm sort of trying to allude to with that with that statement
1: no I'm, I'm definitely nicking that one. <laughs> but the but the last question that we ask all of our guests, which links to that question as well, is knowing what you know now, if you could go back and give Mark advice <laughs> when he started at Stoke City in 2012, what would you go back and tell him? <sighs> well, that's
0: a, that's, a, that's a cracker, that is. I would tell him to probably be a little bit more on the front foot in terms of what we just spoke about, you know, understanding what was coming out rather than just focusing directly on the job at hand, you know, look at the bigger picture. And I think it's only with experience that you start to look at the bigger picture. So I think you can have, you can go in and you can have your your strategy in place, you can have your vision and you can start implementing all that, which to you at the time is the bigger picture. But if I could go back and say, look, yeah, you've got that, but actually there's going to be this much more around it. You need to start focusing on on what comes next as well. I think that would be the the key thing, rather than focusing on the the here, the now, than the medium really start to look and plan for the long-term as well.
1: No, that's awesome, Mark. Thank you for your time and thank I you pleasure. for coming on the, uh, on the ASD podcast. Best of luck over there in Florida.
0: I appreciate that, mate. Thank you. Cheers.
1: Hey, it's Andy from Zone7. In the time it takes to read up this ad, our proprietary AI could have analyzed your training and game data, informed you which of your players were at increased risk of injury, and suggested how your staff could reduce that risk by simulating optimal workload strategies for the week ahead. If you want to find out more about how it does this, visit zone7.ai and click request a demo to start up a conversation. Now back to the episode.